What is population health? Why do some people become sick while others don't? How do we study and what can we do to eliminate health inequities? Sick Individuals, Sick Populations, the new podcast series from the Interdisciplinary Association of Population Health Science covers these topics and much more. Join us. Arisha Martinez Cardoso from the University of Chicago. Michael Esposito from the University of Michigan. I'm Daryl Hudson at Washington University in St. Louis. Twice a month as we discuss cutting edge population health research with scholars working across disciplinary boundaries. All right, good morning everyone. And thanks for joining us on another episode of Sick Individuals, Sick Populations, the podcast from the Interdisciplinary Association of Population Health Science. Uh, I'm your host, Mike Esposito, flying solo today. Um, and I'm excited to be joined by three outstanding colleagues uh, and members of the University of Michigan's Racism Lab for a chat about the group's upcoming national symposium called Toxic Equilibrium, Structural Racism and Population Health Inequities. Uh, that'll be held virtually on February 24th uh, in collaboration with IAPHS. Um, so welcome in everyone and thanks a ton for uh, taking time uh, out of your busy uh, inauguration day uh, to chat with us. Um, and as always, let's kind of first go around and do brief introductions um, so listeners can get a sense of uh, who you all are. Okay, I'll Somebody. go first. <laughs> Hello everyone, uh, my name is Miles Durkee. I'm an assistant professor in the psychology department at the University of Michigan, specifically in personality and social context. Hi everyone, my name is Ramona Perry. I am a doctoral candidate in the joint program in social work and social psychology at the University of Michigan. Hey everybody, my name is Kayla Fike. I am also a doctoral candidate in the psychology and women's and gender studies programs at the University of Michigan. Awesome, it's really weird to see you all in this capacity now, but I really appreciate <laughs> you uh, taking out the time from like I said, what's been already an eventful inauguration day um, uh, to chat with us a bit. All right, so to get things started, let's talk about what Racism Lab is exactly. Uh, I think that folks can figure out from the name uh, what the group is all about, um, but can you tell us a bit more about the lab's history and kind of like overarching goals? Yeah, so I'll be happy to take a um, first stab at that. and. Um, uh, you guys feel free to chime in as well. So overall, Racism Lab is an interdisciplinary working group at the University of Michigan. Um, it's been sponsored now for six years by the university and institution, a combination of the Rackham Graduate School and the Institute for Social Research. And what it is is that it's a working group that allows scholars, including um, professors, postdocs, doctoral students, and master's students to be able to come together um, to examine the study investigation and the critique of racism and racism related research and its implications on health. So Racism Lab has been pretty a great experience so far. Uh, many milestones have come out of the group, um, including um, a special issue in the social science of social science of medicine. Um, we've also have, hold an annual symposium each year that addresses a different theme within the examination of racism. Um, we've had writing retreats. One of our most famous writing retreats is actually in Paris <laughs> uh, the last uh, two years ago, which was a great time. 
but ultimately it's just a great opportunity for scholars across the university to be able to come together to um, discuss and critique our methods and our conceptual frameworks with racism. So at a big school like Michigan, um, it can be difficult sometimes to interact with your colleagues from other departments, other disciplines, because we tend to stay in these silos. So even though I might be studying racial discrimination in the psychology department, I very likely have colleagues in sociology or social work or public health who are also studying racial discrimination and its health effects, but yet we don't find opportunities to come together to be able to discuss our scholarship and our different disciplinary perspectives and how we're addressing similar social issues and social constructs. So Racism Lab is that kind of solution right there where it allows scholars to bring their perspective, to bring their own unique disciplinary lens together to really pretty much enhance everyone's examination of this major topic. Sure, yeah, that's a wonderful summary of it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like I probably should just stop pretending like I don't see y'all every week and that I'm not part of the group. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, like like Miles said, um, you know, was really excited to become part of Racism Lab in the first place because uh, it offered up this, you know, space to connect with like-minded folks that I didn't have to argue with um, and kind of <laughs> convince that structural racism was this real kind of principal organizing force in the U.S., right? Um, so for that reason, it, it's just been a fantastic experience, even for someone like me who did not get to go on the uh, writing retreat, which I'm still sure. about. <laughs> but, you know, it's been such like a, a, a fantastic, fantastic kind of, uh, you know, research space um, just for connecting with like-minded individuals. Um, what, what drew the rest of you to the group, right? Um, like, and what kind of difference has kind of participated in a kind of such a unique kind of space where everybody's like kind of bought into the idea of structural racism made for your research um, and also for your general experience at Michigan. Uh, I'm really excited to hear about from the psychologist in particular on this, you know, as a sociologist, like we think that y'all never like study structure. And so they're like trying to like understand like how, you know, like, how that concept kind of fits into like your research and uh, like how, you know, like how it was received by your colleagues and stuff like that is mm -hmm. super fascinating. I can start. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, I'm in the joint program in social work and social psychology. Um, and so what that's meant for me is that I've always operated in between fields, um, but my labs didn't. And so I found myself often thinking about um, things a little differently or wanting to access and investigate um, the way the different fields were considering race and racism in ways that my kind of, I guess, more silo, siloed fields weren't necessarily doing. And so for me, Racism Lab was this amazing opportunity because I was surrounded by people who were thinking the way that I was. Um, a lot of other, a lot of my colleagues in Racism Lab are also working across fields and in joint programs. Kayla is, for example, as well, and I know she'll talk about that too in a minute. But mm -hmm. um, so it was really great to be able to be in a space where just about everyone around me is also operating across fields and thinking interdisciplinarily about these um, issues that we all are interested in studying. Um, and it is definitely true that from a psychology perspective, a lot of the work is often focused on the individual, individual meaning making, um, individual thought processes. Um, but for me being a social worker as well, I think about structures all the time. And so this really gave me an opportunity to um, blend and, and bring together my research agenda um, in a way that I feel like I may not have 
been able to without some of the insights um, and some of the ways that I was able to learn from my colleagues who are also doing really awesome work. Yeah, that's super cool. Yeah, I will share my experience as well. Um, I think like Ramona was saying, it's interesting being in a joint program because built into your degree is this idea of uh, interdisciplinarity. Um, but at the same time, when you're in those different spaces, maybe they're actually, you know, women's and gender studies is definitely in a different building than psychology. I feel like when you walk in, you kind of put on your other hat, you know, like your, your women's and gender studies hat or your psych hat, or like in Ramona's case, your social worker hat. And you get very steeped in the um, kind of patterns and mandates of the methods and the conceptual frames that you're using from that discipline when you're over there talking with those folks. And so we kind of function as like a bridge, right? And sometimes it's, it's hard to be, to be the bridge. You don't always know how to translate the same topics that you know are being discussed in both places um, just because there's different language being used and different ways of approaching it, right? So being in racism lab helped me to be with other bridges, if that makes sense, <laughs> like other people who were doing that work of translating and trying to figure out how to push back on the, the boundaries of the different disciplines that they were working within. And I think that's something I also wanted to pick up from what Miles was saying was about um, just kind of having a space to think through the conceptual frames and the um, methods of your discipline with someone else who's bringing their own perspectives from their discipline. I think it helps us to kind of also question how the disciplines are being held accountable to the study of structural and cultural racism or not, right? So when I'm saying I'm struggling to figure out how to talk about this in, you know, my area of psychology, which is also personality and social context, or within the feminist spaces that I'm in, I think it helps me to take back that language of holding that discipline accountable. Like, no, this is important. And how can we make sure that we're talking with other people about whatever aspect of structural or cultural racism that you're studying? So, yeah. So I'll just add, so yeah, I agree completely with the comments that have already been mentioned about kind of some of the appealing factors and what I think drew us all to Racism Lab is pretty similar. Um, one thing that I really gained from being in Racism Lab was it really, helped me to be able to identify the blind spots in my research and the blind spots in my conceptual framing around discrimination and prejudice, racism. So coming from kind of a classic psych psychology background, uh, when we think of bias, prejudice, discrimination, we always think interpersonal situations. Mm -hmm. So for me, like that was the end all kind of, even though I knew other types of racism existed, for me, the priority really was interpersonal. So it wasn't until the opportunity like Racism Lab to be able to interact and really get into in-depth conversations with scholars who also are you know, invested in inequality, oppression, and discrimination, racism, but looking at it from very different perspectives where they're not simply relying on our self-report measures where how many times a week did someone say a negative message to you? Like in psychology, we're all about our measures and our skills, which typically get at interpersonal experiences, but may have more difficulty getting at more of systemic, you know, types of issues that are much harder to collect if you're depending on self-report measures. Um, so that's really helped me a lot, um, not only in the measurement of, of these these experiences and their negative impacts, but also from just the framing, the conceptual framing itself in that um, these dynamics are much larger and broader um, in implications. For sure. 
just being around that energy, like it's kind of hard to describe like what kind of the dynamic and what the space that we create in Racism Lab is, but, you know, just being like kind of witness to some of the, you know, legendary arguments maybe between Miles and Maggie about structural racism and discrimination, right? And just like being able to like soak that in and just see like kind of, you know, clashing ideas and like kind of moving together to like kind of come to resolutions that are like good for both sides. It's, it's just great, right? It's a, a really, really kind of, you know, unique space that's been helpful for me and sounds uh, similarly for all y'all. Um, okay, so that leads really nicely, I think, into a discussion uh, around this year's symposium, right? I'm really excited to bring some of those conversations that we just talked about that are critical, kind of interdisciplinary, um, that we typically have when we all sit around in that really nasty room in ISR every week um, <laughs> to a broader kind of national audience, right? And so, uh, Ramona, I know that you've been doing a lion's share of the work on um, getting this uh, symposium organized. So could you maybe tell us a bit more about what folks can expect from this year's symposium, uh, including a bit on the speakers and kind of um, uh, panels or sessions that you're most excited about? I would love to, since this has been so much of my life recently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, in terms of what people can expect, I think, you know, generally what you can expect is to be able to engage with some amazing research um, from scholars who span many disciplines, many universities, many research institutes from across the country. Um, and I think that's a major strength of, of this symposium is that we're talking about um, a concept, number one, that has proven over time to be more and more important for us to be thinking and speaking about. But we're also able to do so in a way that encompasses so many different disciplines and really allows us to have a much more robust conversation. Um, and also allows us, you know, as Miles alluded to earlier, to think about our own work and how we can expand and broaden our definitions and how we're considering things. Um, but specifically, um, I'm really excited about <laughs> the whole thing, <laughs> but there are, um, I think there are some key facets of it that I am really excited about. I think it's one thing I really appreciated about it is that we have um, several different types of mediums that people can engage. So we have a keynote um, by the, like the, <laughs> Dr. Bonilla Silva. Um, and then we also have moderated panel discussions, we have poster sessions. And so I think it gives those who are going to be joining us an opportunity to be able to engage with the research and researchers in a number of different ways throughout the day. And I'm really excited about that. Um, I think it's clear that I'm very excited about our keynote. But there, are also, <laughs> there are also some panel discussions I'm really excited about as well. Um, and I don't want to, you know, give away too much. Um, but the panel sessions really do approach structural racism, population health from some different angles that I think will be really interesting for people to be able to engage with. So there are some that are focusing in on critical race theory and mass incarceration um, and what that looks like from a structural perspective. There are other presenters who are going to be focusing on innovations in terms of structural racism and measurement. Um, and yet others who are actually going to be um, looking at this from the angle of the experiences on immigration policies and the health and experiences with racism of Latino immigrants and what that looks like. And that's another angle that is incredibly important and very salient 
Um, but I think also that we don't get to speak about as much. And so mm -hmm. I'm just really excited about the variety that we're gonna that we're gonna get to experience across these panels as well as the posters. For sure. Yeah, definitely. It's like for listeners out there, right? Like, I don't know if it's come through in the podcast yet, but I'm a really kind of just unpleasant, hard to please person. But going to these symposiums in the past, like I just like Ramona is not overselling this one bit. Um, like it's just like the research that um, I've kind of seen in past symposiums from Racism Lab is just so dynamic and thoughtful and interdisciplinary. That it just kind of melts my heart. Like I just want to stand up and do the uh, Citizen Kane clap. Just like it's it's a really really kind of unique, um, uh, kind of rigorous, uh, exciting kind of uh, symposium or conference. So like definitely be sure to check it out. Um, so on that, right, like, I don't know, I'm going to date the podcast, which maybe you're not supposed to do, but today's inauguration day, like I've said, um, and I don't know, did y'all get to watch any of it? Mm -hmm. Surely so, did, you know, <laughs> Madam Veep gets sworn there in. There you go, right? <laughs> um, and so, like, one thing that was just really mind-blowing about for me is that Joe Biden, centrist Democrat, got up and was like, yeah, we got a problem with structural racism, <laughs> right? Or systematic racism, I think is exactly what yeah. supremacy, right? And that was like, wow, okay, this thing that, um, you know, has been a bit of a, not a, maybe a fringe idea, depending on what discipline and what kind of institution that you're in, it, mm -hmm. is now kind of front and center and being brought up in these national uh, um, uh, conversations. And it makes sense, right? Um, you know, even a lot of the issues that we study are persistent and kind of exist always. Um, but I think that the invigoration of white nationalism and kind of the emergence of highly visible kind of health disparities, like those that we see in uh, COVID, have really animated a kind of and um, kind of a need uh, to like understand what structural racism is and kind of like understand our country through that lens. Mm -hmm. um, and so, like, I guess for you, for y'all, like. Um, does your research, like, I, I'm curious about how your research bumps up against um, some of these current, like, uh, uh, trends that we're seeing in the, uh, in the states and, like, how it helps make sense of it. I think that we're going to get a lot of folks that are kind of, like, very interested in the type of work that we do now, now that this has been put on the national stage. And so, like, what can your, like, uh, what, what can your work do to really, or how does your work kind of like help speak to that and kind of make sense of things for people? And well, well, I know Ramona, you said that we want to keep some of the stuff from the symposium uh, under wraps and I get it, we don't want to blow up anyone's <laughs> spot. So if you want to talk about that question of wit re regards to the symposium, uh, we can do that too. But let's, let's start with uh, like our, your own individual work. Yeah, can I start? Is that cool? Yeah, yeah. go for it. Okay. Um, yeah, you know, I've been thinking that, about this a lot because I, what I'm really focused on right now is how young Black adults think about the cities they live in and um, especially in urban areas, their neighborhoods, their cities, and how other people think about their neighborhoods and cities and what that means for their futures, right? And I've really been imagining like myself walking to the bus stop in the morning and always hearing that the cities that I lived in were top five most dangerous in Michigan. But like that wasn't my experience, you know, like walking, like I said, just through my neighborhood and 
uh, chatting with my neighbors and all that. So, you know, lately I've really been thinking like, what does this experience look like of walking through the neighborhood in COVID, right? Like when I've been really just struggling to understand now, like people are taking less public transportation if they can um, and, you know, having less of an opportunity to evaluate the spaces that they live in or they're doing it through their window or in a new way where they're just kind of walking around there's less to go and do indoors that's like safe nowadays you know mm -hmm. so yeah I mean I, it's got me really thinking about in the next phase of my research just like how to understand how people interact with the physical spaces that they live in um, and think about them and even get messages like where people are inundated with news, you know, cause it's one of the only things we can do is like watch screens. <laughs> um, so how are those messages about the cities they live in also just like even more powerful now? Um, so yeah, I mean, I, yeah, <laughs> COVID has thrown a lot of people's research for a loop, I think, and, I, and it's making us re-theorize, re-conceptualize and, you know, to Miles' point about b blind spots or spots where we weren't being as, as broad in our theorizing before. Sure. Would you like to go next, Ramona? Sure, I can go next. Um, so I think for me, um, these times and, and everything that's going on has really helped me to um, I guess organize and shape my, my research. And so being interdisciplinary has meant that um, at times I have felt as though I'm pursuing two degrees, two PhDs, um, even though even though it is a joint program. And so, you know, coming as I had been reflecting on preparing for my next steps and dissertation and things like that. And I started to think about, well, what do I study? And I'm like, okay, I study health disparities. I study experiences with racism and discrimination. I study health decision-making as a result of those experiences. I study doctor-patient relationships and experiences with patient-centered care. And all of those things I just mentioned um, are, are so salient to us as we think about not only COVID, but also what the COVID pandemic really has meant for people of color. It's a health issue, it's a racial issue, it's a political issue and, and kind of, um, being a person of color and, and thinking about those different spheres, it really helped me to think about my research and how what has, has felt to me like disparate pieces that I study really are deeply connected. Um, and this and, and what's happening now really helped me to bring those concepts together and think theoretically about them in a way that helps me to study them in tandem more so than more so than kind of separately, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. so moving into my next stages, I'm really excited about um, the way that my work really is speaking kind of quite directly to what we're seeing structurally, what we're seeing health-wise, what we're seeing politically, um, the people of color are facing right now. So we're definitely living through some unique times right now. Um, and even just kind of, and it's funny how it feels like a decade has passed when it really hasn't been that many yeah. physical years, <laughs> but so much, you know, socially, economically has changed in our society. So even going back those six years to the um, original inception of Racism Lab. So this was at the end of the Barack Obama presidential administration. Um, and during the Obama administration, I mean, there were so many people speaking to how we're in a post-racial society. 
how we've solved the racial problem, you know, and there was so much kind of hesitance towards using the dirty R word racism, where it was so <laughs> triggering. So when we launched Racism Lab at the end of the Obama administration, and even on campus amongst very liberal minded, you know, somewhat woke academics, uh, there was still this cautiousness of even saying the name racism lab like it felt like this kind of dirty name to say and people were kind of cautious on how to approach racism lab so now we fast forward in the trump administration all that's out the window where we can all it's hard <laughs> to deny that racism exists in society now given um all the events that have occurred so even within those full even within those few years it's just been pretty interesting to see how the reception towards Racism Lab has changed in that time span, where prior to that, people were kind of confused why there was even a Racism Lab. Uh, some of the questions we got from people were, why would you guys want to promote something so negative? Or why would you study something so negative? Why don't we rather just focus on positive things rather than focusing on these negative things so much? Um, and then some people were cautious of if it feels our role to point out the racist. So in the kind of that defensive stance of not really, not really sure about what our objectives were with racism lab and there is a little bit of suspicion around the lab uh so those signs have changed now people see the need for how racism is so prevalent in our society and i feel that the lab overall has received um one just a lot more national attention and much more of a warm reception towards uh, the type of work we do um so on that note too i mean race relations have changed how it's affected my work um i mean this this past year alone has been just quite the year so several projects we definitely had to stop data collection uh mm -hmm. because i mean race was so salient in this year not only covid and the racial disparities in communities affected by covid but then we had so many police brutality cases i mean brianna taylor george floyd amount aubrey and because our work at that time we were studying racial code switching and how uh, black professionals and black workers change their racial behavior depending on certain contexts that they're in, whether they're in a predominantly white context, appealing to the norms of that group and carrying themselves in that way, as opposed to being in their own, you know, home, local community in the same race, you know, kind of context in which they can demonstrate more of an African-American or a black cultural kind of swag. Um, so because race was so salient, we had to kind of pause data collection on that because everyone was thinking about race. You know, everyone was so triggered and cautious about just racial dynamics that it created a whole new social climate that we weren't really expecting when we first launched data collection. So things like that have, you know, emerged and it's kind of changed the dynamic immediately of race relations in the United States. Um, we're definitely in a kind of slump right now in terms of racial relations, but hopefully these conversations that are now emerging from this can help us carve out a way for to make some serious progress and additional strides um, moving forward. For sure. Do y'all think that people that like the other people in other kind of research disciplines kind of run up against some of these issues? Like when somebody started the fish mortality like lab, did they get questioned like so hard about like, you know, why do you have to do this? Or we don't want to study death in that way. I, it's, I don't know, that's not a real serious question that anybody should actually answer, but it's just says something about academia to um, kind of see what gets questioned like that. But anyway, we're in a different moment. It's being widely accepted and we'll uh, take it. Okay, so, um, as kind of a last question, right? I think it's a comment slash question. I think it's a bit of a shame um, that spaces like racism lab are relatively common uh, across our kind of industry, right? Um, I think as, you know, um, some of the experiences that you've talked about uh, this conversation 
kind of show uh, academia in general is kind of striving to create uh, kind of intellectually and demographically diverse spaces that are almost exactly like racism lab, right? Like that seems to be the uh, kind of thing that people are aiming for. Um, but like, at least when I look around um, kind of other kind of institutions and the rest of academia, it feels like we're absolutely nowhere near kind of uh, realizing that as something that's just commonplace, right? Um, and so Caleb Ramona, like how crucial do you think it is that we build out uh, kind of spaces like uh, Racism Lab, uh, particularly in like whatever institutions you go to next? And I think this will be, this next question will be really of uh, uh, interest to kind of uh, our listeners who are, you know, part of the, in, quote, the Interdisciplinary Association for Population Health Science. How do you have any kind of like ideas or general advice or anything that you've learned from kind of like participating and helping a racism lab grow um, for kind of other scholars that um, are maybe interested in building out kind of similar in effective uh, interdisciplinary research groups um, at whatever institution they're at? Uh, and for Miles, I'll ask you a question here too. I know that you're engaged in some of this work already at Michigan and kind of like expanding out Racism Lab's reach. Uh, so maybe you could tell us a bit more about uh, the kind of Racism Lab class that you're teaching, how that came about, like what its goals are and what early returns you're seeing from students who are kind of like, um, kind of learning in this uh, really explicitly uh, kind of interdisciplinary mold. I'm happy to start with the initial question that you had asked. Um, yeah, I think that that groups like Racism Lab, um, whether they're called Racism Lab or not, um, are essential when it comes to the study of race, racism, structural racism. Um, we're really not dealing with a phenomena that can be solved by a, a, a single field. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I think for a lot of years, um, we've seen different fields approach the study of race and racism based on, you know, the way that they do it. Mm -hmm. And we've been able to see really great growth um, in our understanding. But I think interdisciplinary groups um, and efforts like Racism Lab are really the place where we can really see um, growth and forward moving progress as it relates to the way that we practically approach um, the study of race, racism and its effects and also the way we theoretically approach it. Um, and so I think that, you know, in my future, I, it is definitely my hope and dream that I could continue to be involved with groups and spaces like Racism Lab because I really believe that when it comes to the work that we're trying to do and the changes we're trying to see, we really need each other. <laughs> that sounds so cliche. But <laughs> it's true, but but it's we true, really yeah. Do. We really do. And I think what makes Racism Lab work is that um, for each person involved, um, we're from different fields, we study things differently, but what we have in common is we're really passionate about studying race, understanding race and racism and seeing and affecting change in that area. And so, you know, anytime you wanna bring a group like that together, I think all you really need is, is passionate people who are really dedicated to, to, you know, the joint and collective goal, whatever that might be. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I don't even care if it's cliche, I love it so much, it's true. Um, yeah, I'll also jump in here. I think, you know, I'm, I'm in my last year of my program 
I've been on the job market and I've just been really communicating to potential employers. Like I'm trying to bring my version of racism lab to wherever I end up next. So I study, you know, race and environmental perceptions, right? So my my lab is called Rep Lab and it's new. It's a baby, but I hope nice. that Rep Lab can be somewhat as successful, even a little bit as Racism Lab in bringing people together and under the guise and the, with the goal of making change to structural inequity specifically structural racism, right? So one of the things that I think is like really key that I do in Rep Lab and that we do in Racism Lab is read things together. <laughs> like in your discipline, how do people talk about racism? Do they talk about it structurally or interpersonally? Do they seem to have any interest in bringing those levels together under one kind of analysis? And how, how do they do that when they try, right? So reading things together, I think has been really key in any intellectual space that I've been in, like actually doing close reading of theories that confuse us, like the books that you sit at home and cry over because you don't understand, like bring it to your lab, you know, so you can talk about it together and really try to understand like, okay, now that I get this concept, how do I apply it in my research? Um, and I think reading together, writing together, um, presenting work, no matter what stage it's at, that's one of the major features of Racism Lab and a thing that I think is important to continue. And then I also think there's this aspect of holding each other accountable to the priorities that we have to be successful and to see change happen in the area of structural racism, but also in our respective disciplines, right? So like if the currency is for you to be publishing. If you're interested in being a public scholar, like how can we support you in, you know, being witty in those op-eds or on social media or just making sure that you're setting time aside for writing and, and thinking deeply, not rushing your work, right? So that's the advice and the approach that I'm taking in my little baby lab, rep lab, and that we have been taking in racism lab for a long time, so yeah. Yeah, I want to add to what you said, Kayla. I love what you were talking about in terms of the accountability and the writing groups. Um, because we are, we're all scholars and we're colleagues, um, but we also are friends. Like we really yeah. take the time to establish real connections with each other. We try to really support each other, both when it comes to our scholarly endeavors, but also when it comes to our personal endeavors and things we have going on. Um, and so I think it's it's not only about just being scholars and sharing knowledge, but also about really genuinely appreciating each other, holding each other up, supporting each other. And that also, I think, has been a really special facet of Racism Lab, especially right now. I mean, so many of us are siloed, we're alone, we're, you know, quarantining, we're trying to stay safe. And so that isolation can be difficult. It can be difficult socially, interpersonally, but also from a scholarly perspective. And so, you know, we continued our meetings, you know, throughout this, um, this pandemic, we continue to meet virtually, support each other, asking, how can we help you? How can we support you? And that, I think, is it's really, really just a huge facet of the success of Racism Lab is those relationships we've built in the way that we have tried to nurture each other scholarly, but also interpersonally. 
And one of the new developments of Racism Lab that we're now pilot testing this semester is incorporating a advanced graduate seminar with the Racism Lab itself. Um, and kind of there's two reasons of doing this. Um, the first is to engage with doctoral students across the campus um, who are already doing this work and providing a more structured uh, working group so that they have that support in that setting to be able to engage in that work, particularly if they do or engage in that work and it's different from the work their advisor's doing, but they are passionate about examining racism, then the expertise provided by Racism Lab can help to give them that type of mentorship they need to produce the best work. Uh, the second motivation is much more selfish. It is because so many of our amazing Racism Lab scholars are graduating like Kayla and going on to tenure track positions pretty soon and leaving Racism Lab. <laughs> so we needed, um, we needed a mechanism that can help to fill in the pipeline with more junior scholars who would then fill in the ranks and stay in Racism Lab. Because currently uh, we're very uh, heavy with advanced doctoral students. And in the next few years, so many of our students are gonna be graduating. Um, so hopefully by incorporating this course, we're able to recruit uh, both first, second and third year students in their doctoral programs um, so that they can get kind of a structured course, hands-on experience with Racism Lab um, and also get course credit for it too. But at the same time, be pushed in, you know, pulled in ways that challenges their thinking with racism and um, yeah, it also opens their lens. So happy to see that. Um, taking place. Um, in terms of the success, we actually just had our first class meeting today. So we had a great introduction, but we haven't <laughs> seen the fruits yet from that uh, endeavor. So hopefully, you know, we won't scare the students too much in the class and that they'll be happy to stay in Racism Lab and remain active members and continue to contribute to the group. Sure. Yeah, it's, a, it's an exciting development and like just building out the infrastructure to have this just be a, you know, continuous um, thing that I think is going to help, you know, change a lot of respective fields from like the folks that we draw in is really, really exciting. Um, I don't know what it is about the, you know, there's something structural about racism lab that really works, right? Like, so Ramona was talking about like how we're, you know, we've got a lot of, I think we're lucky to have a lot of good folks in here that really get along. But I wouldn't say that like there's something there's something that uh, you know like Maggie and Miles and the rest of the kind of professors that uh, engage in racism lab have done to kind of kind of always pull in um, you know these folks that are very interested in kind of supporting folks um, kind of like interpersonally and academically. So there's something about that structural feature that I think is absolutely necessary to like making this interdisciplinary space work. I don't know how you kind of like have a structural mechanism for bringing in people with good uh, personalities, but Racism Lab has figured it out. Racism Lab absolutely has figured it out. So maybe when we think more about that down the line, we can uh, kind of share that with the world. I mean, I'll just add, Wait. it's a combination of luck. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> you know, to be honest, personal invitations where, I mean, when you see the talent in your own departments, then we definitely target specific mm -hmm. people and invite them to join Racism Lab. Uh, and by, you know, going the route of, you know, opening up the course, you know, that's why it's a pilot test right now to mm -hmm. see, you know, how that might play out. But in the past, we were very strategic in the people that we encouraged to join Racism Lab to keep that positive safe space and that positive rapport of, you know, supporting the work rather than having two different disciplines fighting or trying to challenge each other to see mm -hmm. which one is the right way to examine the same social issue. For sure. Okay, everybody, I can sit here and talk all day, but I should probably let you go. Uh, thanks again to Miles, Kayla, and Ramona for a really, really excellent discussion today. 
for listeners, if you liked what you heard, and I don't know how you could not, uh, be sure to check out the kind of Racism Lab Annual Symposium, uh, which will be held on February 24th. Uh, keep an eye out on Racism Lab's Twitter, which is at Racism Lab, all one word, uh, for updates. And also head over to the IAPHS website, uh, IAPHS.org, for more information on how to get registered for the event. For the event. Um, thanks again for listening. Um, I'm Mike Esposito. This is an episode of Sick Individuals, Sick Populations, and uh, talk to you soon.